Welcome to the Canny Conversations podcast, Conversations with a Cause with social entrepreneur Safraz Ali. He coined a phrase that describes what he does as the mad entrepreneur. That's make a difference entrepreneurship. As well as being the author of the Canny Bites books, Saf's business interests cover health and social care, business and corporate events, as well as him being the CEO of Pathway Group, a welfare to work and skills provider. In each episode, we have a special guest joining SAF in discussion with journalist and broadcaster Adrian Kibler. This week, SAF talks to West Midlands journalist John Griffin. With over 30 years' experience in newspaper journalism, John is very well qualified to talk about the past, present and future of his trade. So let's join their conversation. Hello, and it's time to welcome our listeners again to another Canny Conversation with a Cause. Our business-based podcast with me, as usual, of course, is Safraz Ali. Saf, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Always good to see you. Uh, and are we not delighted to see our guest today? Absolutely delighted. John is a, a veteran, I'd uh, say. <laughs> I, I'm going to ask in, him in to, this, to, in... to, to tell his life story in about 90 seconds. Oh, but, 90 but, se- but, is that all? But the man we've got with us today, if he doesn't know it about business, particularly in the in the West Midlands, Nobody else does. Um, John Griffin works on business magazines now, uh, perhaps best known as the the man on the business beat on the Birmingham Mail for very many years. It's a great privilege, John, to have you here. Just just give us a bit of a, a run through of your you know of your background and how you got to got to where you are now. Well, I did forty years, more than forty years, actually, in in newspapers. Count myself very fortunate, really, that I um, I had such a a long run in a in a job which I loved, actually, and I I suppose you could say uh, that I had the, the the best years in newspapers. Maybe we can touch on that subject later on. But uh, I started in nineteen in the summer of nineteen seventy five on the Peterborough Evening Telegraph, mm. covering village fates and uh, parish councils and that sort of thing. Um, Realised that. Uh, I was suited to the job. The job was suited to me. And I did three years at Peterborough. I loved it, actually. It was wonderful times. Um, And then moved up to Birmingham, um, where I got a job on the Birmingham Evening Mail first time round. Worked in Tamworth, where I still live. Did some subbing at Coventry. uh, Then moved over to the Wolverhampton Express and Star, where I did a 16-year stint, Mm. initially in Litchfield. Then we opened the office in Tamworth. Then they moved me to Cannock to cover the minor strike, which was which was a great um, privilege, really. Uh, great memories of that. Uh, short spell in Dudley, onto the news desk in Wolverhampton. Uh, did three years there. Missed reporting. Uh, was better, really, at reporting than sitting behind a desk. Um, so went back into reporting and did um, a lot of crime stuff, actually. Uh, loved it on the star. But times moved on. Um, there was a change of editor. And I came back to the mail um, and worked in Walsall for about just under two years. And then the late, the uh, I say late great, <laughs> the great Ian Dowell offered me um, the business editor's job. And um, I landed on my feet at the right time, really, because it was just when the Rover story, the Rover crisis was mm. coming to um, a sort of milestone, if you like, really, and was business editor for um, 17, 18 years. Uh, and then uh, I took voluntary redundancy in the summer of 2015, and I've been freelancing ever since. So it's been a blast, really. Why have we got him? 
Safi doesn't he? He's done much with his life, does he? He's done a, a stint, yeah. hasn't he? It's, it's, a, it's a marathon, that is. Well, he's, he's, a, he's a tremendous, he's, he's, tremendous yeah, he's, catch. There's not many, many like John. So we're really, really privileged to have you, John. Right, we, we're going to talk about the changes in the, in the business environment in the West Midlands over that period of time, but we're also going to talk about the ways in which business and other aspects of news are covered as well in the media world as it's changed now. Saf, you're a businessman. How much business news do you consume? Where do you get it from? And um, do you trust it? There's a number of questions there. So if I go back to, you know, when I was a, a lot younger, my father was a news junkie. So he used to watch one news channel after another news channel. He used to have two newspapers delivered to the house. Birmingham Evening Mail, obviously, uh, we started having the post as well, and he also had an Urdu language newspaper as well, occasionally. And this is on top of the news. So the six o'clock news, then it's like a seven o'clock news, and the nine o'clock news, and the ten o'clock news. And, you know, I used to dread it really at the time because I thought, you know what, how much news can you have? How much news can you consume? I'd rather watch one of the soaps or some of the channels. And the choice was fairly limited. We didn't have mobile devices. And so therefore, if the main TV in your home is on news, that's the only choice that you have. And I had to also have a conversation with my father on the news. And so news was something that I used to dread at, at times because we had too much of it and there used to be debates and so forth. And then there comes a moment where you actually start seeing things differently and you, you go into your father's shoes to a certain level where you, you become your father in a, in a way. Where now, where you know, I, I regularly consume the main TV stars, Terrestrial, I don't know, Terrestrial, yeah, there you go, John, thank you, thank you for helping me out. Channel 4 News uh, is what I watch and I'm I'm able to watch it on uh, Channel 4 Catch Up, Channel 4 On Demand. Uh, I also watch uh, Newsnight, wherever I can, Panorama, and on top of that I've got my apps which are sort of alerts. So you've got your breaking news, but you've also got the slow news. So I have I have a publication that's delivered to my house as well called The, the Week, which analyzes the news. And I have Money Week and The Week. These are the sort of publications that I do. I, I did subscribe to for a short while to The Telegraph, and you've got to pay for their paywall. I did, I did that for a little while. But now, currently, I, I tend to sort of look at specialist publications, and the the week and the money week is where I tend to sort of get my news from. It's interesting, John, because we are of an age. When you're on the Birmingham Mail, you know, the concept of uh, of rolling news in some respect is not new, is it? Do you remember how many editions there used to be of the Mail during the day? Well, when I joined the Mail in 1978, I think it was something like 10, 11 different editions. So they'd have what they called a lunch edition, which was a Birmingham one, which was, I think the deadline for that was about nine o'clock in the morning. And they had a string of editions throughout the day. Uh, but not only that, they had a string of different uh, dif- district officers. And I think we had something like 14 or 15 district officers. And you're talking about Staffordshire, Warwickshire, uh, Worcestershire, Solihull, Sutton, Coalfield. They also had a, um, a, an office in Fleet Street in London. So the, the total, I think the total reporting staff was something like 50 dotted throughout the West Midlands covering um, individual towns. And that coverage was blanket, really. So they cover everything that was happening in those towns. It's all gone. 
It's all that has been swept aside, sadly. Yeah. Um, I mean, unlike un, un, us, John, Sap is a, a stripling, a young man, and can very much with the digital age. Uh, I remember when you finished your career on the Birmingham Mail, you wrote a series of, of columns which I, I thought they were brilliant, and you described yourself as an analogue mind in a digital <laughs> world. Well, what did you mean by that? Well, I, I, I'm the first to sort of admit that I, had, I never really adapted particularly to the digital world. I mean, I have done to a certain extent. Obviously, you have to. Mm. You can't be a dinosaur. But my career was spent by and large in, in, in print. And, and so I'm a creature of my of my times, if you like, really. Um, and I love those. I'm, I'm still a print man rather than a digital man. I, I still read newspapers avidly. Um, I, st- I read magazines avidly. I like the physical uh, sensation, if you like, almost, if that's the right word, of, of actually holding a, a print um, a newspaper or a magazine and, and being able to, you know, sit in your local pub, have a couple of pints and just go through the, the newspaper at your leisure, really. Um, I find screens are completely different to that, really. Uh, and I think, to be honest, the, the, the world spends too much time staring at screens, I'm afraid. And it's changed the nature of news as well. Um, if you think that there's, there's a certain discipline involved in writing a new uh, writing a story for print you know you've got to write it to a certain length that doesn't apply with um with the web if you like you can you can ramble on for for as as long as you want to but you've got that discipline in print and i think that is that is something that is lost in terms of screen um people probably think i'm a dinosaur probably i'm a dinosaur actually but i'm proud to be a dinosaur well, if you're a dinosaur, you're a Tyrannosaurus Rex um, <laughs> of, 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 of the media world. Um, I asked Saf a question, John. I said, should he trust what he consumes now, given that f- so many fewer journalists than there were at one time? Can we trust it in the way that we could in the days when you were telling us what was happening all over the business world in this region? Well, I suppose it depends what, you, <laughs> what you're reading, really. I, I, I think that... Uh, there's far less coverage. Certainly, if you look at the, if you look at this region, they will argue um, the, the Post and Mail, uh, my old employers, where I spent so many happy years, uh, now now uh, called Reach, will argue that they are in fact reaching more people than ever before, and that is probably true because so many people have access to free information out there on the net. It's the it's the calibre and the quality of that information which I would question, and we've already discussed the fact that um, there's not as many journalists employed. A, a whole swathe of the, all those officers have gone, so the towns are not being covered in the same detail as they were before. But you know they do they do as well as they possibly can in many ways. But I think that print-wise, they're fighting a losing battle because you've only got to look at the circulation figures. The mail is selling less than 10,000 now. The post is selling something like 1,100. The mercury is selling, I don't know, five or 6,000. So what is the future for those titles? Um, I don't know. I, I fear the worst. It's broader than that, John, because, you know, journalists are the people that keep those that make the decisions and rule us um, to account. Uh, And I think there's a real sort of 
democratic challenge with, with what's happening. Saf, it's not very often in your life that you're going to have the opportunity to talk to a Tannosaurus rex. So uh, what would you ask the dinosaur alongside you about? And what would you perhaps challenge in terms of what, he, what he's just said? No, there's many things I I actually agree with. Is you know there's the, you know John's got an opinion. He's you know he's uh, he's had lived experience. He's gone through that. He's just sharing those experiences. Uh, you know, nothing absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know in terms of the discipline of writing for newspapers, of course, it's different to writing a blog because you know there, there is no such thing in terms of limits. There's no such thing in terms of what you do. That's that's clear. In terms of you know this whole element of you know what's the source of information and so forth. Yeah, it's really how do you verify your sort of viewpoint on a story? That's that's the thing, isn't it? You know. You know, we come from an era where a, a newspaper is leaning towards the left, it's leaning towards the right, it's a little bit more centre. You know what the the opinions of the the owners of the publications are. We sort of know that to a certain level. But now it's getting a little bit harder in terms of what, what the stand is of that particular news outlet or the publication. You, you just don't know that. You know, we're, as I said before, you knew a particular publication is a little bit leaning on this side or this is what their mechanisms how do we get you know, how do we get our source of information in terms of that that gives us in some cases unbiased some people want to go to publications where they agree with uh, because they want to that's their viewpoint they have a certain confirmation bias you know they tend to go to, towards that but where do you get your news where you can say this is something a little bit more unbiased? It's it's not necessarily an opinion. It is more fact-based and it probably gives you a middle ground. I think that's where, you know, that's the thing that I continuously look for. And I just thought, you know, if John can help us a little bit in terms of, you know, it's probably likely to be online, but where is that sort of source that we can all look for to say these, these guys will give us a little bit more of a, all-rounded central approach so in a way that's the question there john what's the source of information that you you tend to look for to get an understanding of a situation i I think that the sources have remained more or less the same i mean Mm. if you look at the nationals they still have if you you read the guardian you have a different viewpoint from if you read the telegraph Mm. um and you know you've got specialist niche publications you've got the economist or the, or you've got the private eye or you've got the spectator they've all got their own agendas if you like really regionally newspapers they're not they're apolitical really in the regions and that and that's a good thing the point i was trying to make was that the depth of coverage certainly in this area in the regions and and elsewhere across the uk there isn't that depth of coverage anymore because you haven't got the, the amount of journalists covering it. In actual fact, they um, well, I have to be fair to my old employers, and they they were taking on um, staff last year. The numbers of staff there haven't replaced what they've lost in previous years. So you haven't got the blanket coverage of the towns in the West Midlands that the use that you used to have, and that was trusted coverage. They were professional journalists, so that. Sadly, I don't think that's going to come back. Um, and, and we all know that the internet is like the Wild West, really. You know, you can, you can believe what you want to believe, if you like. 
Um, and there's so many different sources. The, the, I mean, one of the big problems is everybody thinks they can be a journalist. Uh, so, so people will set up their own websites or, or blog and stuff like that. But they're not journalists. I mean, I couldn't pretend to be a carpenter or, or a funeral director. I wouldn't, uh, obviously, uh, or, or any others. I, I've been a journalist all my working life, and, and I trained to be. Um, and I continue to be a journalist. Um, but the internet has set up, it's a can of worms, really. Um, and you've got to be very careful what you, what you read. We all know that there's disinformation out there. And uh, sadly, that dis- disinformation can, can disrupt lives. I mean, we've, just to remind our listeners, we're listening to a canny conversation with, of course, John Griffin um, joining Safra Ali for a chat about business and the media. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, uh, do like us, do subscribe, and do share. And if you're not been enjoying it, you're probably not still with us. So, Seth, um, do you, in terms of what John has said, you know, my my view for what it's worth, which is not a great deal, is that there's a place for comment and for news within any publication, be it online or be it print. But it's important to, that that it clearly distinguishes between the two but moving on because john's had such a illustrious career covering business in this patch saf what's the biggest business story in this region that that you think of in terms of yourself as a consumer of of news and john there must have been so many but is there a standout business story, Safi? You go first. Okay, I mean, there's periods, like for example, the West Midlands um, mayoral elections, for me, that was a big thing. You know, uh, the devolution took place, a change within the region. Uh, we were electing a, a mayor, first time ever. What the impact of that change is going to be is going to affect all of us. What the powers of that individual were going to have. And really, the whole economic perspective, from my view, was you know, was going to change. And so for a period of time, for those elections, prior to those elections, in terms of the whole campaign, I was following it on a regular basis uh, and multiple sources, not just in terms of uh, the traditional papers, but also obviously the the local regional, because it wasn't really a national story, it was a local story. Uh, but then you've also got your uh, yeah, social media, your, your Twitter You've got your individual uh, people who are posting. And for me, that was a massive story recently. A bit more than the local elections. I think local elections is always an area where people are interested in. But for me, that was a a very big story not so long ago. That's probably something which is a bit more more memorable for me. HS2, again, you know, that whole story in terms of HS2, Birmingham Birmingham International Airport. I'm always interested in terms of the, the, the infrastructure uh, what's going on regionally, uh, and the, for me, those are big stories. I think any large employer coming into the area, any large employer making changes, job losses. I think we've had Leyland Daff uh, one time. Uh, you know, the Land Rover, JLR, those sort of stories. They're big stories, and the general interest to to everybody because that affects the economy as a whole. John, you've done so much over the years. Barna strike you mentioned earlier on. You know, the, the big changes with the automotive sector. Is there a standout story that, that you remember? That, that Oh, yeah. I mean, the Longridge has got to be the biggest one that, that I covered as a business journalist. 
uh, it went on for, well, I took over as business editor in the end of just before Christmas 1997, and that was when BMW owned Longbridge, uh, Rover and Land Rover. And, um, and it was just coming to the crux, really, at that point. So I, I landed on my feet. Uh, BMW denied that they were going to sell off Rover. And then suddenly in um, early 2000, March 2000, um, story broke in Germany, actually, that uh, they were selling it to um, John Moulton the, of Alchemy Partners, who was the venture capitalist. Um, and they said they would cut, uh, I think it was 5,000 jobs uh, immediately, uh, which is in, in fact how it turned out later on. But there was there was there was a, a big story there to cover in the intervening years, and um, and then the mail got behind it. There was a classic example of a, of a, of a, of a great newspaper campaign, uh, which was uh, masterminded really by Ian Dowell, the editor, um, along with Carl Chin, was a big help, and the unions. And we got a we there was a march to save Rover where we got 50,000 people there. Um, and that swung the um, bid for control of Rover towards the Phoenix 4, uh, which is John Towers and co. So the story sort of uh, unfolded over a period of the next five years. They um, continued to uh, produce cars at Longbridge, but but they never really had a chance. I mean, they never made money. They were, they were losing money um, hand over fist. And in the end, of course, as we all know, Longbridge closed um, in 2005. But they 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 did support um, relatively well paid jobs for for those five years. In the end, they ran out of time and money. Um, and then, of course, the Chinese came in. Uh, they went into administration. The Shanghai uh, Corporation bought them, um, and eventually it went full circle almost, and the, they became MG UK under the Chinese, uh, which is what John Moulton said he was going to do sort of five years previously. But it was a fantastic story to cover, and um, uh, I have some very, very vivid memories all the way through, really. And, and, and maybe, John, a, a, I don't know, a, a turning point, this region stopped being a serious industrial powerhouse and became a McBurger economy. Saf, uh, your thoughts? I mean, we, you know, if you... Yeah. I don't know if it's not your part of the city, but... <clears throat> Longbridge, where John said, you know, there used to be, I think it was 10,000 people making motor cars. It's now very nice. There are fancy apartments or a lot of shops. But, you know, they're low-paid, relatively low-skilled, insecure jobs. That's the way we've gone. And, and, and do, you, do you find that sad, Seth? I think it is sad, but it is also generally where, where things are going. So uh, in terms of the particular uh, Rover story, I mean, I, rem I do remember that. And it was, uh, you know, again, good versus evil. So you had, to a certain level, John, John Moulton, uh, you know, he he's a venture capitalist, pri you know, private equity, they're bad. And then you, these guys, they're trying to be good. And these are sort of things I, I sort of tend to remember. And every story has to sort of have a, have a bad person and a good person. And in, in this particular case, I think in the end, you know, we, you know, yes, five years, we've had five years, but the, I think the wrong people were given the opportunity in that particular case. But going on, you know, we, we, we're just living in a different world. You know, it is a, it is completely different in terms of how things are made, and and this is unfortunately the sign of times. But it is reversing to a certain level because we are producing higher value goods. We've got high value manufacturing taking place, and you've got some stories out there that that are leading the way in terms of uh, in terms of our place within the world of uh, of manufacturing. 
and you know manufacturing has a place it definitely has a place and and uh, and we've learned that to a certain level with the whole covid period the fact that we need to rely on ourselves and you know be able to sustain ourselves and and i think our mindset has changed and uh, you know being able to produce uh, goods within the UK, mainland UK, I think is definitely necessary. It should be encouraged. There was a time where governments were supporting businesses to create these jobs. Uh, now it just seems to be, as I said, uh, uh, based on consumerism as opposed to you know servicing the people that are there. Many sort of plants are being closed, and they're either becoming shopping centres or or houses. And uh, you know, and it is a sad thing to see. But I think that's just the economy as it is, and we're not going to be able to change that. And you know, we can reminisce as much as we can, but it is unfortunately, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think I mean, obviously, this is the workshop or was the workshop of the world, and you know, you're not going to go back to a days where British Leyland employed like thirty thousand people up at Longbridge. Uh, We've lost tens of thousands of manufacturing Mm. jobs, some of them in the last twenty years, and that trend will continue. But you will have, I mean, Jaguar Land Rover. If you look at what's happened there, that's almost the reverse side of the coin from what happened up at Longbridge in that they they were on the on on the brink early in 2000 oh sorry in 2009 and they were going to close Castle Bromwich um and just retain Solihull and Halewood then they they changed their mind and they invested millions of pounds tens of millions of pounds and created thousands of jobs um, I think they've had a few blips down the road since, but can, can you imagine what the what the West Midlands would have been like if 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 we'd have lost Jaguar Land Rover? So, you know, there is there is still niche operations in manufacturing will, will still survive, and but maybe not, probably not in terms of mass employment that we've had in the past with the likes of Longbridge and and some other of the of the bigger employers. I mean, Cadbury's don't employ anything like they they used to. We lost LDV. We lost Alstom, the train makers. Uh, many, many jobs have gone, so, uh, all in manufacturing. But equally, you know, we got the electric car revolution yeah. coming around the corner. So uh, we'll have to see what, what happens with that one um, and how that affects the West Midlands. Yeah. I mean, both of you, what do you think about the role of the media in terms of, uh, you know, keeping those that make the decisions that, that rule our lives honest? I mean, when we look at the current situation, you know, we're in. The early spring of 2022, we've got a prime minister who's a proven liar and charlatan, somebody for whom traditional conservative values like loyalty and honesty and integrity and family values are an anathema. And yet he seems to get away with it. If we had a more powerful and questioning media, do you think that we would be holding people to account perhaps more effectively than we are? And do you think in the past, you know, we were better at that? Because, you know, the political leaders in the past didn't get away with with what's happening now. Both of you, what do you think? Well, I think that Boris has had a, a, a bit of a pasting, really, at times from maybe maybe you're right in what you say. But he, but he certainly, I think there is a very questioning media. And if you look at uh, the Nationals, they, they'll weigh into Boris. The Daily Mirror will weigh into him. The Guardian will weigh into him. So it, it isn't the case that uh, I think the, the age of deference, if you like, 
was swept aside long ago in the 60s by when private eye was was suddenly appeared and stuff like that and the satire boom so i think that boris will always get it in the neck any prime minister would actually i mean you look what happened to theresa may uh, look look what happened to john major look what happened to new labor if you like really so that is a, an important and essential role of a questioning media long may that carry on do you think the media holds this uh, lead us to account uh, perhaps as it should, Seth? I think consumers do as well. I mean, you know, we, we've got consumers who are able to uh, get their voice out uh, a lot more, you know, Twitter, uh, definitely social media, but also, uh, you know, in a way where they can actually raise petitions, which we never had that before. And, you know, people are more expressive of their opinions. And I think that's also changed. I think from a from a media perspective, I think they've done well in terms of actually picking picking these stories up. But it's just, I think that people are a little bit disappointed that nothing seems to be happening. But it is there. People are raising uh, their concerns, and you know it's uh, it's quite obvious in terms of where the tone is, in terms of what people's view is. But I think uh, the Conservative Party will probably pick that up and, and probably have some sort of change to, to distant future, but we'll see. Uh, let's just go back to, to the newspaper business, both of you, as one as a consumer and one as a provider. Now, traditional journalism, death by a thousand cuts, the majority of them self-inflicted. Do you agree, John? I mean, what, what we've been talking about is the way in which, you know, newspapers have cut back on, on journalism. If any product cuts the service it provides to its customers, perhaps it can't be surprised that fewer people consume it. So to what extent has what's happened been inevitable? And to what extent, as I say, is it self-inflicted? And oh. Safras, from your point of view, after John, if you would, as a consumer, do you feel that you are as informed and accurately informed as perhaps you were 20 years ago? Well, I think, it's, I think it's a bit of both, really. I think some of it, yes, definitely is self-inflicted. There's been this rush to digital. I'm not entirely sure that uh, that they thought it through um, to the extent that, that they should have done. I mean, they, they realised that circulation was falling and you can't, they can't hide away from that fact. Um, 40 years ago, the mail was selling 340,000 copies a night. Now it's selling less than 10,000. So they, they've got to do something, yeah. I mean, and... and They've put all their eggs in the digital basket. Um, and I think that's at the, at the expense of, you know, the old business model worked. Uh, I can understand why it's not working anymore because the internet has disrupted everything and, and changed the whole media landscape. But to, put, to throw everything into the digital basket and to even today uh, when Reach had their last uh, accounts, I seem to really recall that the figure for print... Uh, uh, advertising revenue is still 75%. In other words, digital's something like 25%. That's reach. Um, I'm not sure about the other companies, but but that, that figure was quoted very recently. So what happens when those print titles go? Uh, they're going to lose a large chunk of their of their advertising revenue. And I'm not. I'm not sure how they're going to get it back by re- recouping it through 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 digital and there's the, the you know the the editorial side of things the giving away stories giving away great exclusives free 
uh, online, I don't think was a very, very sensible idea. I mean, I think they they should have held back um, and there should have been a more restrained approach. Maybe they should have looked at um, the number of redundancies they're making on a regular basis and thought to themselves, well, is it a good idea to get rid of quality journalists? Uh, are we affecting the product? In many ways, it's too late. Um, it's gone too far and uh, they're reaping what they're sowing if you look at the circulation figures. So as a consumer, um, obviously you, you, you are a relatively young man, but you're old enough to have been around, perhaps not in the golden era of newspapers, but in an era when, you know, people like John were working on newspapers that sold tens of thousands of copies a day. Do you feel that your access to information has been degraded or, or, or perhaps not? I think a lot of it is going back to consumer choice and where consumers are, are moving towards. It's very similar, you know, the points that John's raised, it's very similar in terms of the music industry, in terms of the vinyl, the records, and how consumers engage. We, we, we've had a YouTube generation where a lot of the video, a lot of the the music is from there. You know, we've got Spotify, we've got all of these other things where people less and less now are paying for their music, they're able to access it. And we've had very similar in terms of news where you're able to get it for free online and people weren't paying for the hard copies. And that's happened there. And it's a technological revolution and it's also a consumer way that where consumers are going. Now consumers have a lot of choice. It's like how many channels do we have? Uh, in terms of uh, satellite TV, uh, the cable networks, all of these the choices that we have, uh, not just in terms of Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these, you know, we've, there's so much choice that you just can't keep up with it. And, and it's very similar. You've got radio stations uh, online. You've got so many choice there. And very similar now, you've got, there's a lot of choices about really filtering that. Uh, so we're in a position where there's just too much information and really how do you actually go and select that? So the key now is really picking the the thing that, uh, the, the right thing for you really. There's an art to filtering, there's an art to finding this information and also understanding very clearly which is sponsored, what, what are adverts, what are opinions and, and what is the sort of journalist that you know we've been talking about and that is a little bit murky and it's not as easy as it may seem. Social media is a source of a lot of information these days and you're, you're very active on social media, sir. Is it something that we should uh, cheer and cherish or is it something that we should curse? And in terms of the content of social media, would either of you or both of you agree that the only way that you can bring this to book and it would be difficult but is to hold the platform responsible for its content in the same way that you know a newspaper that john and i used to work on would be held responsible for its content in other words you know there are libel laws there are rules about right of reply there's a requirement for professional journalism to be, be, be balanced in some respect so how, how do we control this monster I think you've got to break them up like they did with the oil companies. They wield far too much power. I mean, uh, Zuckerberg has far more power than, than, than Murdoch has ever had, in, in, despite Murdoch's amazing career. Uh, and that can't be right. And it's a complete Wild West out there. Uh, you can't trust 
so much of what uh, uh, the likes of Facebook and Twitter and and all the rest of it. Uh, as I say, you know, I'm I'm a dinosaur. I'm proud to be a dinosaur, but I, but I I don't want anything to do with that world particularly, and that's got me into trouble in the past, really, uh, to a certain degree. But I don't think let alone my personal circumstances, I don't think it's the real world. And I don't think it's a society which can be seen as, as you know, they shouldn't have that stake in society, um, the, the Silicon Valley guys over in San Francisco. They've changed the world. There's a lot of benefits from it. But I think that the benefits, the disadvantages outweigh the benefits. And I, and I think we've seen the, the result of that with terrorists able to broadcast their message, teenage suicides, uh, let alone the destruction of my industry. Yeah, and it's such a brilliant route for, for organised crime as well. Um, Safraz, well, you correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're a social media fan. Why is John wrong? I think I use social media mainly to uh, to be transparent. So uh, you know, I'm I mean, leaving uh, broadcasting aside and and the whole journalist aspect of it. You know, it's a platform for me to get my message across. It's a platform for me to talk to my customers, to our potential staff. It's also a, a way for me to tell the world, you know, my thoughts, my views and be a little bit more transparent in my journey in terms of building the business, growing the business. And that's predominantly, you know, why I say I'm a social CEO, because I'm a bit more out there in terms of in that public life. Uh, so, you know, if I have a view on something, I'll share it. If I've met somebody, like for example, today, you know, we'll, you know, might, uh, uh, might put a photo, photo up and I'll share with people my sort of life, what I want to share. And that's my choice in terms of what, how much I want to share. And I'll share my sort of views and opinions on uh, business matters and uh, on on things that I'm interested in. So that's, that's really how I, I use that as a platform. Um, social media as a whole, yes, you know, it, there's, there's been occasions where, many occasions where people have used the advertising features within social media to target people. So you've got a situation where, uh, because behind the scenes of the social media platform, they understand you better because of how you, where you navigate, how much time you spend on certain aspects of it. They have a, uh, they have more information about you, and because you, they have information about you, you are now the the, the thing that's of value, and that's what's sold to individuals, where you never had that with the tra- traditional media, and because now you're the instrument that's valuable, you are the the thing that the social media platforms are selling that's also targeting you better. That's what the sell is. And there's nothing overly wrong with that. But where where I have a problem is that where the advertisements are often are misdirected. So, you know, there's often advertisements there that Facebook and other uh, media channels are broadcasting, which are clearly wrong, whether it's PPI, crypto and various other things. And these organizations are able to use that platform for a couple of weeks without any issues and then until, it, until it's reported. Should Facebook be responsible for the content that somebody else puts out? Possibly not, because the content creator is that individual. But in some cases where there are advertisements, absolutely they should be responsible for those adverts. That's where I draw the line in in that respect. 
I mean, in the, in the old days of newspapers, we'd be into that column that used to be on the right-hand side that John will remember that said late news. But there's just two more things I'd like to, to deal with. If somebody wrote something about your company, Safraz, and it was fairly cr- critical and they put it on social media, it's there. If you were writing a story, John, and somebody called you and said, you know, Safraz Ali is X, Y, Z, and... I mean, I would imagine, you tell me if I'm wrong, that one of the things that you would insist on doing before you went to print was was to ring Safraz Ali up and give him the right to reply. Now, maybe the right to reply can be overstated. I mean, somebody once said of the dear old BBC, who I admire hugely, that if they got an exclusive interview with God, they'd never be able to run it because they'd have to make sure they've got an equal right to reply from the devil. But isn't that the one of the cores of... Good journalism, John, the right to reply, or at least to, to ask somebody to comment if they're subject to... Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. Um, and we go back to what we were just talking about, about the, the, the or I was talking about, the, you know, the Wild West. People can go on social media and say whatever they, they like to a certain... There have been cases where people have actually gone over the top and been taken to court and had to pay out, but they're few and far between. But, you know, sort of anonymous keyboard warriors, they're all over the world, aren't they? Whereas, you know, the right to reply has always been a sort of a staple, one of the great staples of, of the press, and long may that continue. As long as newspapers survive, and I don't know how long, much longer, certainly some titles will survive, I think I think some of the nationals will keep going, hopefully for a long time to come. Not sure about the regions, sadly, but as long as they survive, you'll always that, you'll, they will always abide by that structure, and that is only right. Asaf, I mean, if somebody puts something on, online uh, on Facebook or on one of the other social media sites that was uh, adverse to you or your business, um, don't you think that it should be a requirement of the, the platform, not just the individual that's writing the, the, the nasty comment, but the, the platform should be required to ensure that you had a, a right to put your point of view? I think in some cases you can, uh, depending on what it is, you can report it. And there's a process that goes through that, but you're not talking to an individual and you're not able to get a response. And, you know, it's, it's one of these where it sometimes gets very difficult in terms of who's accountable and, and what that process is. But there is an element where you can report uh, things which are probably problematic and you can write and, and, and so forth. Ultimately, I think it is... Um, it is about whose content is it and who's responsible. And uh, you know, I, I just put it down, if it's an advertisement, I think definitely it's a platform that's responsible. If it's content, that's the individual. But again, there needs to be some accountability, particularly with regard to going back and getting that either corrected or taken off. Yeah, I mean, we are coming to a close now, but, uh, you know, I know of one publication, there are probably others as well, that, that uses paid-for editorial without labelling it as such, which isn't part of my world or John's world. John, finally, I mean, hopefully you'll be with us sharing your insight, knowledge and experience for many, many more years. But but as you look back on a career in journalism, was it a good life? What would you do differently? I mean, obviously I'm not talking about the money because I think most people know that if you want to get rich, you don't go into journalism, but... Um, would you do it again and what would you change? If I could turn the clock back, I'd do exactly what... what, what, I've had a fantastic working life. 
Um, it hasn't. It's not like being an accountant or a lawyer or anything like that. You don't. You don't. Not at regional level, anyway. But that it never really mattered to me. I mean, it ha- it has been described as the best job in town, or you know, the first draft of history and that sort of thing. And and, and I always felt I always looked forward to going to work when I was working in newspapers um, because you just didn't know what the day would bring, and it, and it brought me into contact with people I would never met otherwise. It, I, I went to places I wouldn't have gone otherwise. Um, and more and more than anything else, but I just loved it. I just enjoyed it and, and made lifelong friends. But if I was starting today, uh, I think that life would be rather different. And I'm, I, I don't think, well, I know that I wouldn't have anything like the, the experiences and, and, and the memories to fall back on because the job's changed so much. I didn't change with it, but that was my decision. Seth, before we finish it, any, any final questions for John? Any, any comments about the value that people like he plays in keeping us informed and perhaps even, dare I say, in, in keeping, you know, the democracy uh, on course. Any any comments? Absolutely. I think uh, John has has seen things from a different perspective, uh, particularly some of the changes that have happened within the, uh, the West Midlands region. And those changes were there at the moment where there was a lot going on and it was it's difficult, difficult times. And, and you've seen the the changing landscape, not only in terms of the region, but also in terms of people and how people have changed during that course. And uh, you know, John and, uh, and I have had, uh, I've had the opportunity to sit with John on a number of occasions previously. And it's always fascinating to uh, get some insights from John in terms of that, those experiences. Just want to thank, thank you, John, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. And who knows, Perhaps we'll talk to John again in the future. So much knowledge and insight. Um, time's beaten us, it always does. So we'll curtail this canny conversation with a cause. We'll ask our listeners if they like us to uh, demonstrate that, to subscribe if they feel that they would like to and, and to share the the link with others. We, we also value feedback enormously. Um, so if there are any questions or any comments about what we do and how we do it, they would be hugely gratefully received um so that's it for now take care of yourself until the next time bye-bye thanks for listening to this canny conversation with the cause these conversations are based upon the canny bites books by safras ali available on amazon to find out more go online and visit saf's website pathwaygroup.co.uk or join him on social media He can be contacted at safras at pathwaygroup.co.uk. Canny Conversations with a Cause are produced by Pathway Group, who have a mission to change lives through skills and work. And they do this through upskilling and reskilling individuals by getting them firstly into sustainable employment and tackling the talent and skills issues commonly faced by businesses. In addition to their core skills and employability business, Pathway Group also actively promote diversity, equality and inclusion and have initiated causes such as the BAME Apprentice Network, the BAME Apprenticeship Awards and the Festival of Apprenticeships. This is a 1386 audio production. 